you have your Bibles, you can begin opening up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. If you don't have one, you can grab one of the table Bibles back there. It's found on page 878. If you don't want to walk back there, you can just Google Luke 19 ESV and follow along. If you've been with us the last few months, you know that we've been looking at the life of King David. And we just completed part one from 1 Samuel, and we're pausing right now as we enter into Holy Week, and we're continuing the kingly theme by looking at the greater David, Jesus. And then after Easter, we're going to pick back up in the life of David, part two, from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, it's really important that you um, understand why we're looking at Holy Week, why every year we take intentional time to focus on the last week in the life of Jesus. You may not realize this, but the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than a third of all their entire content focuses on this last week in the life of Jesus. It's really important to Christianity. And so I would submit this to you that if you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand the last week in the life of Jesus to look at these key events and to understand what they mean and why the gospel writers focus so much attention on them. We're looking at the gospel of Luke and his account of this story. I like Luke because it's likely that Luke was actually an artist and maybe even a painter. And he has a beautiful way with words and describing all of these scenes. You may not even realize this, but you know Christmas is a big deal. You realize that. But you may not realize that the birth of Jesus is not even contained in all four gospels. But the triumphal entry is in all four of the Gospels. And so this is a really important section for us to understand who Jesus is and what it means for us. So we invite you to go on this journey of Holy Week with us, seeking to understand more about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's begin that with this moving scene from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 28. It says, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to this text, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to believe who you are, that we might encounter an unexpected power that might change us today and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Nelson Mandela was the well-known president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999. During his lifetime, he received over 250 different awards, notably even the Nobel Peace Prize. Surely in his life, there was much sacrifice, there was much courage, and there was much wisdom. But one academic, Paul Shoemaker, points out that perhaps his most notable and noble act was after his first term as president when he chose not to run for a second term, even though the Constitution allowed it because he wanted to demonstrate a peaceful transfer of power. This was a noble act, a humble act, but it pales in comparison to what Jesus does in this story. Clear my throat. So I invite you to go along with us on this story. Let's enjoy our way through it. The first thing that we need to look at in this story is to discover a little bit about the identity of Jesus. Let me set the scene. Okay, when the writers wrote the gospel accounts, the stories, their intention was for us to sit down and to read the entire gospel uh, together. So you'd sit down and read Luke from beginning to end. Now, if you did that, you would notice some themes throughout the gospel of Luke. You'd notice the repetition of the word kingdom. You might also see the theme of Jerusalem. So, for example, if you were reading through the Gospel of Luke, you would come to Luke chapter 9, verses 44, and it says, From that point forward, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was a man on a mission, and he had a laser focus on what was about to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And as all of the events and all the sermons were leading up to this week, the disciples were buzzing. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says they were buzzing because Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem and they expected the kingdom to come immediately. They were pumped up. And so in this story, again, Jesus is walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. He walks 13 miles, and then he decides to stop over at Bethany and to see some friends, Matthew, or Mary, Martha, and you may remember Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. Jesus went out ahead to Jerusalem, walks 13 miles, stops at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but Luke doesn't focus on any details of this part of the story. Instead, he focuses on this unusual task that he sends two unnamed disciples out to do. He says, hey, for that last two miles, I want you to go out 
and I want you to get me a donkey. And not just any donkey, I want you to get me a donkey that's never been ridden. And the disciples are looking at him like, huh? <laughs> we, we just walked 13 miles from Jericho, and now you want to ride a what? For the last two miles into Jerusalem? And just some random people, you want us to go up and be like, hey, I need your donkey. And they're going to be like, sure, take it. And they're like, what should we say? And Jesus says, tell them. The Lord has need of it. Here's my Hertz gold card. Just tell them this is my number and they will give you the donkey. Think about that. Why, why is Jesus doing that? You know, it's almost like he could have flown directly into D.C., but instead he flies into Baltimore and rents a car and not just any car. He's like, I'll take the economy. Here we go. You know, no one would be impressed with anybody driving into Washington, D.C. in an economy class car. Nobody's going to pay attention to that. So honestly, what's the big deal? Why do Christians around the world remember Palm Sunday when this guy, Jesus, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, in order to understand why this is a big deal and is as significant as a transfer of power, you need to see three details in this story that tell us something about the identity of Jesus. Okay? All of them start with a P. So easy to take notes, easy to remember. Kids, when you go home and you're eating lunch and your parents are like, hey, what was the sermon about? You can be like, the three Ps. So here they are. Here are the three details that give us clues about the identity of Jesus. The first of these is prophecy. Okay? Now, Jesus is riding a donkey because of the prophecy back in Zechariah 9.9. Now, you may not have had your quiet time in Zechariah this morning or have it memorized, so let me read Zechariah 9.9 9 for you. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the disciples may not have seen this or realized this until some time later, but Jesus knew what he was doing. He was deliberately making a claim publicly to be the long-awaited Messiah of Zechariah 9. How public was it? It was during the time of Passover. That's when all of Israel, all the Jews descended to Jerusalem to remember that they were set free from captivity through the blood of the Lamb. The city was swollen with tens of thousands of people. And so in this moment, Jesus is publicly claiming to be the long-awaited prophesied Messiah of Zechariah 9.9. Now think about this. Because some people will say, yeah, Jesus, you know, he never actually claimed to be the Messiah. Look at what he's doing right here publicly. He is claiming to be a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He's saying, I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just a philosopher. But I am actually doing this intentionally to draw attention that I am the Messiah. First detail we see, prophecy. Second detail we see, possession. Notice his kingly gesture of commandeering this donkey 
but not just any donkey. It's a kingly gesture when you can requisition someone else's property and there's no suspicion that you're stealing it because it's yours. It's your kingdom and everything in it belongs to you. And so he says, that's my donkey. And they say, all right, that's your donkey. It's a kingly gesture, but it's also a sacred gesture. You see, if you go back in the Old Testament, and you read uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, you actually find out that unbroken beast, right? Why did Jesus say, hey, I want a donkey that's never been ridden? It wasn't just because he wanted to be a cowboy and see if he could hang on for eight seconds. There was an intentionality behind it. You see, animals that hadn't been ridden before were reserved for a sacred use, set apart from a common to a holy use. So this is a kingly gesture where he's saying, I have authority over that donkey, and it's also sacred because I'm taking an unbroken beast. Think about that. Everybody listens to what Jesus tells them to do. Hey, disciples, go get me a donkey. They say, yes, sir. They say to the owner of the donkey, we need your donkey. He says, yes, sir. And then Jesus tells the donkey, I'm going to ride you, and you're not going to bunk. And the donkey says, okay, (laughs) right? All of creation is submitting to the authority of Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the king. And we see this clearly by his possession of this donkey. But not only do we see prophecy, not only do we see possession, but we also see the praise, the praise of the crowd. The multitudes are praising Jesus for all the great works that they have seen him do. As I think about this, can you imagine who's in that crowd? Can you imagine all those people who are praising Jesus's name? Can you just see blind Bartimaeus? Can you see Mary Magdalene? Don't you believe that Lazarus is the loudest one singing? He brought me back to life. I'm going to worship and praise this guy. It's amazing. And they recognize that this is a kingly gesture. So there's a rumor. There's whispers. This might be the king. And so not only do they praise him with their voices, but they praise him with their clothing. They take off their garments. They put it on the donkey. And they roll out the red carpet for him to ride on. And in other gospel accounts, it tells us that they cut off the palm branches and they wave, him, wave at him as a kingly gesture. And then they start praising him with Psalm 118, what we did in the call to worship. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, he accepts their praise. He's not modest in this situation because he deserves what they are offering. You see, even Jesus' enemies and his critics understand what the praise means because they look at Jesus and they say, hey, tell your disciples to shut up because do you know what they're doing? They're praising you as the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, they are. (laughs) And if they don't do it, the very rocks will cry out. Do you see, he's accepting their praise. He's saying, I am the king of Psalm 118. This is an amazing and a beautiful scene that is painted by Luke. And the point that we're to take from this is Jesus 
is clearly claiming to be king. He's claiming to have power. He's claiming to have authority, okay? That's the first thing to see. Now, the second big idea to see in this passage is this. Even though his rule and his reign and his power and his authority are clear, he's also a different kind of king. Power enters Jerusalem in an unexpected way. He enters in a humble and a vulnerable procession. How is this humble? Well, it should be obvious, right? He's entering on a donkey, on Eeyore. He's not entering Jerusalem on a stallion, on a war horse, on shadow facts. He's entering on a donkey. This is a humble act. It's the way that one writer described it is this. Jerusalem, after all, was the key city for the Jewish faith and the Roman seat of power in Palestine. Scott Hosey writes, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and a bevy of other Roman higher-ups lived there. Like Washington, D.C. and other cities of power, Jerusalem was accustomed to a fair amount of pomp and circumstance. Compared to that kind of event, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem looks a little sad. He's riding on a donkey, not a white stallion. He enters in a humble way. But he also enters in a vulnerable way. Think about this. You see, the king in Zechariah 9.9 in that prophecy could ride a donkey. Why? Because there were no remaining threats and there were no enemies. You see, in the Old Testament, there was actually another king when he was crowned king who rode a donkey. King Solomon rode a donkey. He rode a donkey. Why? Because his father David had already defeated all the enemies and there were no threats. And so he could ride in a vulnerable way into the city on this donkey. And so Jesus is entering this city in a vulnerable way. But what's amazing about this is the threat is not gone and the enemies are not yet defeated. And so Jesus is offering himself even before the enemies are defeated. And this would have been shocking to them, right? Because they expected a Messiah to come like King David and to overthrow the Roman Empire, to lead a band of zealots, to do away with the Roman injustice. But now this king is on a donkey in such a humble and in such a vulnerable manner. Now, if you think about that, that's amazing because these two traits are paradoxical and they're not normally combined in any one human being. Authority and vulnerability, power and weakness, meekness and majesty, divinity and manhood. This is what makes Jesus amazing. There's actually a great book, Andy Crouch writes, uh, Strong and Weak, which talks about how humans flourish when both of those things are present. And there are no more fully present than in the life and person of Jesus. He is paradoxical. There is strength and weakness. You see, Jesus is a king, but he's a different kind of king. And that brings us to our third main idea from this passage. Because he's a different kind of king, he's the king that we all need. 
There's two different responses to this king in this passage. Look at the first response. There are those who revere him. In verses 38 through 40, there are the multitudes, or 36 through 38, there are the multitudes who are praising Jesus for all of his mighty works. And can't you imagine, as Jesus is riding on that donkey, that he turns around to look and see who is behind him? And it's not an impressive group of people, right? It's the broken, it's the hurting, it's the poor. It's the downtrodden. When Jesus looks back, though, he sees them, as John Calvin calls them, fit heralds of his kingdom. You see, Jesus came for the poor. He came for the least. He came for the broken. What did he say? I came not for the well, but I came for those who are sick, the unrighteous. You see, A different kind of power yields a different kind of people. Jesus cares for the lowly and the lost and the broken. And that's me. And that's you. Do you admit that you are the broken, the weak, and the powerless? Will you admit that you need him and revere him? So we see one group of people respond to Jesus with worship. But yet we see another group of people in verses 39 through 40 that we've already mentioned, the Pharisees. They reject Jesus. They try to silence his disciples. Remember, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this is amazing, right? Even though Jesus was right in front of them. Because a lot of times we say, hey, if, if Jesus were right in this room, I'd have no trouble believing. That's not the case. Jesus was right in front of them, okay? He brought Lazarus back to life. There was no denying that. He was in the grave, and Jesus brought him back to life. I know Bartimaeus. I know that he couldn't see, but now he's got 20-20, and Jesus did this, and I was out on that lake, and that storm was going crazy, and then all of a sudden, it was calm, and do you remember that time we was preaching all day and we got so hungry. It's like when the pastor preaches to 12, 15 and your stomach's growling. Remember he preached all day and it was like nine o'clock and we're like, we're really hungry. And then he took a few cans of tuna fish and some Wonder Bread and fed all of us. And there was stuff left over. But you know what? Even though they saw all these mighty miracles, they still rejected him. You see, sin It's tragic blindness. It's failure to recognize truth even if it is right in front of you. And Jesus says, if you see me for who I am, this is not a moment for silence. You see, when we see him for who he really is, our lowly hearts burst with praise. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? And will you join the chorus of worship? Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, I'm not in either one of those groups. I don't reject him, nor do I revere him. And if you're just skeptical, we're really glad you're here. Welcome. There's no better place to explore the claims of Christianity. We have 
a lot of classes that do that. We ourselves have been skeptics and have gone through a lot of these same questions that you have. And I would just submit this to you. One of the one of the evidences for why Jesus is who he says he is is because we wouldn't make this stuff up, right? If you're writing a story, if it's a man-made religion, then you have Jesus on shadow facts. You have him on a white stallion, and you have him coming in and conquering Jerusalem. But you see, the Jesus of the Bible surprises us. He's different, and he's better. And you see, we believe in Jesus not just because we think it's a good idea, but we believe in Jesus because we believe this is historical fact. Like Paul tells us, the gospel is no gospel apart from facts. Holy Week is an event in history, and the Jesus of the Bible is better than we dream. So if you're skeptical, we're glad you're here. Keep considering the claims of him. Let me just kind of wrap it up with this. Palm Sunday is an invitation to all of us. It's an invitation to enter the kingdom in the same way that Jesus entered Jerusalem. How did he enter Jerusalem? With humility. You see, the way that we become Christians is through humility. By saying, I'm not my own hero. I'm not on my own white stallion, and I can do everything that's required of me. We don't enter or become a Christian by becoming the hero of our own story. But we become a Christian through humility by admitting, I'm not the hero of my own story, but I know Jesus is. And I am able to admit my weakness and my brokenness and my need of a savior. You see, as several pastors have described it, sin is servants substituting themselves for their king. But salvation is the king substituting himself for his servants. And that's what we have in the triumphant entry. The king we need is not the king we deserved. Jesus loves us too much to just save us from earthly injustice. He came to save us from our sin and death through his own perfect life and death. He didn't just transfer his presidency, but he emptied himself of glory. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be welcomed into the family of God. That's a different kind of power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a king, that you have all authority and power and majesty. And yet, Lord, you are not a king who oppresses his people, but you are a king who enters with humility and vulnerability in order to save your people. So, Father, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe, to trust that you are the king that we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.